Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. In the tumultuous history of Southern Africa, one man reigned supreme, and his exploits were nothing short of revolutionary. Shaka Zulu was born to humble beginnings and ostracized by his powerful father, but through political intrigue and extraordinary violence, would come to rule the Zulu nation. Using innovative new tactics yet unseen in sub-Saharan Africa, Shaka's reign would become one of brutal conquest and absolute consolidation. By the end of his life, the Zulu Empire would be home to over a quarter of a million people and be the premier superpower of Southern Africa. On this episode, we discuss Shaka Zulu, his life, and legacy. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 4 of the series, we're discussing game changers, who they are, what they did, and why they still matter. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer, on my author's website, bradykreitzer.com, on our new Facebook page, facebook.com slash bradyjkreitzer, and of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. On today's episode, we're moving into a new realm of history, one that is grossly understudied and that needs a great deal of context. I'm talking about the history of the continent of Africa. Our focus today, and this comes from loyal listener John Shaw, so thank you, John, for the recommendation, is going to be on Shaka of the Zulu, uh, one of the most revered and feared warriors in the history of of South Africa. Now, when you deal with African history, I think there's a few things we have to lay out. And it may take us away from the, again, biographical sketch of Shaka himself, but I think it's important we clarify this. If there is one area of the planet that we have a terrible lack of information on regarding history and culture, it's the continent of Africa. Now, from the Western perspective, from the European and American perspective, I think we tend to minimize this place in a great deal, and it's not necessarily something that's, that's a new development. It's been that way for some time. But when you think about the figures of Africa, and I'll give you a few examples, uh, I could tell you that Africa represents 20% of the world's total land mass. That's nothing small. I can tell you that it's about uh, 14% of the world's total population. That's one out of seven people on this planet being African. And, of course, the place where humanity begins, going back hundreds of thousands of years. Considering all of that, considering that it's host of thousands of languages, hundreds of religions, uh, a multitude, almost countless amounts of ethnic groups, considering all of that, the fact that we know very little about African history should be very disturbing. And fortunately for us, as history as a discipline develops, our understanding of this continent and its subregions grow as well. What do I mean? Well, if you're going into history as a profession, and you really want to have a job someday, I think that's pretty important. 
You could go into, say, oh, I don't know, the American Civil War, which I think something like uh, 80% of historians do, and be on the poverty line. Or you could go into a field where there is actually incredible new discoveries to be made and access and have access to sources that really have been unseen for sometimes hundreds of years. That would be African history. It really is the new frontier of history because there's just so much we don't know. So I think episodes like today on a person like Shaka of the Zulu are important. Uh, and I was excited when I got the recommendation from our listener, John, to maybe throw this in. So with that in mind, there's a few things we need to lay out as far as groundwork before we can really talk about who Shaka is and why he's so important. We're going to focus our discussion in what today is the nation of South Africa. South Africa is a very big place. One of the things you have to understand about the African continent is that it is much bigger uh, than anything you really probably have experienced before. I mean, the entire continent could fit all of the United States, Canada, England, France, Germany, really all of Europe, huge parts of the Middle East and China inside of it with plenty of room to spare. You're dealing with massive spans of territory when you're talking about African history. And it's important that we don't marginalize that. We have to keep the vast scope of the geography in mind when we talk about it. I mean, think of it this way. I always like to do an exercise with my students when we discuss African history. And one of the things I ask them, I show them a quick map of modern Africa. I ask them how many nations make up Africa. And the answers I get are always hilarious and always wrong. Some people say, well, I think Africa's two countries, North Africa and South Africa. Talk about making your skin crawl. Uh, but other people say maybe 30 countries, maybe 50. The reality is Africa today holds 63 nations and territories. And that number is always changing because of politics we tend to miss. In the mind of the average American uh, or Brit uh, or European, when we look at Africa, we say, well, all the people look the same and they all speak the same language and they all share a common culture. And as we look further, you realize the continent itself is infinitely more vast and complicated and nuanced than we can even yet still appreciate. Again, African history is very much the new frontier. And it's why an episode like this is so important. But today's episode is going to focus primarily on South Africa, what is today South Africa. And in many ways, our history of Africa begins when Europeans first arrive. Why is that? Well, there are major problems in history we deal with all the time, especially when you deal with uh, non-Western tribal societies. You see, as historians, we love the Western philosophy of history. You write everything down, you package these letters and documents away uh, in an archive, and you let later generations find them in a very neat and organized way and write a book about them. That's how we view history. But the reality is, with tribal societies, a written component of language isn't always a feature of it. In fact, it's almost never a feature of it. So for about the last, say, 300 years, we kind of just let that history fall by the wayside, and we excuse the fact that we know nothing about it based on somewhat prejudiced or completely racialized arguments. We would say the Africans are inferior to the British or the Americans or the French or the Germans. We would never say the information's there. We're just too lazy or too comfortable to go and find it. 
Now, fortunately for us, we live in the podcast age. And what that means is we live in an age where technology and accessibility are greater than ever before. And for us, we can find that history of the African continent, but you have to look in places you aren't necessarily comfortable in doing. You're not going to find that history in an archive or in a library somewhere. You have to sit down and talk to people. Now, if from the American perspective, we've gotten to be very good at finding these histories. And again, these are not written histories. These are oral histories. And we find them by talking with ancestors of the people involved in the stories. One of the things about tribal societies that you will find all over the world is that family heritage and family lineage through stories is a very important part of their life. And they pass it down with incredible detail from one generation to the other. Now, there's some pitfalls of oral history. And again, when you study history uh, at an academic level, you learn how to deal and manage with those pitfalls. But you can't say oral histories carry no weight uh, because in places like, say, Native America, Central America, and Africa, that skill is invaluable. That being said, we can move into our topic today, Shaka of the Zulu, and see why exactly this man is so important and why we hold him in such high esteem, whether he deserves it or not, in the history of our own world. To set the stage a little bit, we have to set the stage geographically. South Africa is a very unique place in terms of climate and a very unique place in terms of racial makeup. Now, I'm not talking about South Africa today. For this story, we're going back to about the year 1787 to begin. And what you'll see is this. All across Southern Africa, you have a number of different tribes living in different regions, almost countless amounts, thousands of different tribal groups and clans. But a large majority of them speak a common language root. We call that language Bantu. Now, the Bantu language, again, that narrows us down a bit, but you're still dealing with a few thousand peoples. But when you look at just South Africa, you're going to group all the Bantu-speaking peoples into a group of about 800. That's not exactly easier, but it's getting there. And we can call those people the Nguni people. The Nguni peoples. There are many different tribes. There are many, many different clans. But their languages and their cultures are very similar. Uh, they're similar in the regard that there might be some slight dialectic differences, but they're similar enough we can comfortably group them together. It's sort of like the difference between an American and a Brit. In America, if I say, I'm mad about my flat, you'd assume I have a flat tire. In Britain, if I said, I'm mad about my flat, you'd think I'm very happy about my new apartment. So it's kind of like that. Not to simplify it too much, but I think that's important. At any rate, the Nguni peoples in about the year 1787 and 1790 are about 800 strong. And again, they're very different. Now, what's important for us, because this is the world that Shaka of the Zulu will emerge from, is that we sort of nail down what those similarities are. Because to understand this great, amazing story that lies ahead of us, you have to understand the shared culture. So when we look at these people... There's a couple things they have in common that I think we need to highlight. Number one is that they are a, what we call patrilineal society. What that means is, much like uh, Europe and much like America at the time, the family name travels through the father's line. Therefore, the most powerful person in any family is the oldest man, the oldest grandfather. Many tribal societies have it reversed. The most powerful person is the oldest mother, but again, 
different cultures, different customs. If you look at the villages of the Nguni, if you look at how they live, one of the things you'll see is that they're all built and constructed in a very similar way. Typically, a village will have several houses. Uh, the one in the furthest back of the village will be the oldest male or the dominant male of the family, say the husband. They do have many wives, they are polygamous, and each wife would have her own small house as well. And then stemming from that again, head of the family's home, you'll have many other homes branching out in a circular pattern uh, that sort of delineate one family settlement. Now the one thing that the Nguni all have in common, in this case specifically the Zulu, a designation of the Nguni, a Bantu-speaking people, in the middle of their village they'll have a large cattle wrangling uh, circle. It's a circular fence, and the cattle, the cows, live in the middle. Now, cattle may be the most important component uh, of the way of life of these people uh, and the sustainability of these people over a period of thousands of years, but cattle are really sacred to these people. It's everything to them. They're masterful herders. Cattle can serve as currency as well as property. That's very important to understanding this sort of um, unified way of life. But I think that gives us a very good picture of what we're dealing with. If you want to be specific on a map, the area we're looking at is called KwaZulu-Natal. Now, KwaZulu-Natal is on a map of South Africa on the far east. It's a small region that's pinned between the Indian Ocean in the east and the Drakensberg Mountains in the west. So again, it's a very small place hemmed in by geography with very limited resources. So it's a highly competitive world. If you've seen the landscape of KwaZulu-Natal in, 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 in uh, eastern South Africa, it's a really sort of spectacular place. Wonderful place, I think, for herding and sustaining a, a society. Uh, it does have deep uh, craggy cliffs that lead to rivers, but for the most part, uh, and mountains of course, you have these beautiful rolling green hills. So for a pastoral society, again, a wonderful place. And because of that, they have a system in KwaZulu-Natal that works very well. Uh, the Nguni aren't necessarily at each other's throats all the time when you're looking in the grand scope of history. They have a system that works well. It's a system that maintains balance and sustainability. The question becomes for us, where does everything go wrong, at least as far as keeping that way of life alive? Well, it goes wrong with the arrival of white people, specifically the Dutch and the British. The Dutch will be the first Europeans in South Africa in about the 1500s. They're going to establish a city, they'll call it Cape Town. The British will take that over not long after them. And again, with an important focus on geography, this is occurring in the western half of South Africa. So we aren't necessarily so concerned with them. What we are concerned with, again, is the region of KwaZulu-Natal in the eastern side of South Africa. And there will be another European country there colonizing as well. They'll be the Portuguese, and they'll establish themselves at a place called Delagoa Bay. So here's a pattern we've seen before, and when you study empire like I do, you see it everywhere all the time. The Portuguese will arrive in this case, really any colonizer, and they'll set up a trading post. Delagoa Bay is the example here. That instantly transforms the homeostasis, you can say, of the region in which they emerge. Because again, remember, the Nguni had a system that worked really well for them. For hundreds of years, they farmed, they herded their cattle, the system worked well. 
But when the Europeans introduce themselves into that culture, and again, I'm not assigning blame here in any way, it's just something that happens with empires, they instantly upset that balance by introducing new factors and considerations into everyday life for the native peoples involved. So suddenly, having access to Delagoa Bay for the people like, for example, our focus, the Zulu, become extraordinarily important. When you go to Delagoa Bay, you trade with the Europeans. You give them things that you have uh, that are only specifically found where you live. Trade goods they desire, like, for example, cattle or other exotic uh, items. In exchange, they'll give you things you don't have. Uh, precious, for example, uh, very sort of practical metals, brass, things like that. And that becomes an economy of its own. With that new economic consideration... The old rules that have governed your region for a very long time no longer apply. And your number one priority becomes getting to Delagoa Bay, trading with Europeans, again the Portuguese, and making your living that way. And that upsets all of the balance we've been dealing with for the last 15 minutes in eastern South Africa. Now eastern South Africa again is a patchwork quilt of peoples, the Zulu are being one of many. And it becomes a very contentious place. A lot of warfare, a lot of competition, a lot of struggles. And it's this world, in 1787 and beyond, that we see the rise of Shaka, of the Zulu. So what exactly happens? Well, here's how the story goes. I will admit very frankly, it's a frustrating study in the history of Africa. There's no doubt that Shaka is one of the most important people that we've discovered yet in African history. He's a big name among many big names. But we know relatively little about his early life, and the reason is because of the pitfalls we've talked about. You have a lot of stories, you have a lot of oral tradition, but you don't necessarily have anything you are 100% comfortable with. And again, it's why a lot of people don't go into the field. As someone who studies the native peoples of the American Northeast, like me, you find that being one of the real maybe attractions if you know how to view it and do it the right way. If you can navigate those sources successfully, you have a very fruitful career. If you don't, however, you can fall into some pretty common pitfalls. So I'll give you the rough sketch of, uh, of Shaka's early life, and here's what we can say. We have a number of stories that ballpark Shaka's birth in about the year 1787, so for all intents and purposes, we'll go with that. It's very hard to nail that down, but it isn't necessarily as important as this next bit of information. Shaka, we know, is born to a noble family. We know that his father uh, is going to be chief of the Zulu one day. And we know that because Shaka is the natural heir later in life. So that's something we can say very confidently. The, the man that fathers Shaka is named Senzanga Kona. Now, Senzanga Kona is not the ruler of the Zulu at the time, but he is one of the next in line. He's of the royal family, so to speak. And he, like all young men, will uh, father illegitimate children at the time. I think that's something that's easy to say with a woman named Nandi. Now, there's a real problem here. And the problem is that Nandi and Sansanga Kona are both part of the Zulu uh, tribe, so to speak. They're members of different clans. That's okay. Uh, but it's that tribal affiliation that makes their marriage uh, or that makes their relationship very much off limits. So what I'm trying to say is Shaka is born into a very unfortunate situation socially for him because his mother, Nandi, will be ostracized and he, as her child, will be ostracized too. Eventually, she's forced to leave her own village 
she takes up uh, shelter in another village, uh, a completely different tribe, in fact, called the Mtetwa. And the Mtetwa will allow her to raise her children, uh, and this is very much, I think, Shaka's upbringing as a young man. Now, no surprise, and again, these are some of the stories we hear, I think it's important to relay it. Shaka will spend his time with the Mtetwa, uh, learning how to herd cattle. No surprise, that's what almost every man in this society does. But he also learns the ways of fighting, military force. Uh, he has a very strong, I think, military education. And this might be a bit of hyperbole, and it might be a bit of a creation myth, but I think it's an interesting story. One of the stories about Shaka's early life is that one day he was herding his cattle and he let his guard down. The cattle scattered, some were killed, uh, he suffered as a result. But out of that suffering, he learned an important lesson, as the story goes. And the lesson was, safety, security, and order are the most important elements for any society. Now, moving forward, when he reaches his 20s, we're going to see Shaka get the chance of a lifetime when his father dies and the Zulu chieftainship is left open. Now, the Mtetwa are a much more powerful tribe than the Zulu themselves. That's an important point of distinction. And because Shaka is a Zulu amongst them, he is a very obvious candidate to be put on the Zulu crown, on the Zulu throne, so to speak, and be beholden to the Mtetwa. And that's exactly what the leader of the Mtetwa will do. They'll send Shaka back to his ancestral home tribe and allow him to take over. Now, it's at this moment that we see the real story of Shaka take off. Because to this point, his story I don't think is very extraordinary. Uh, I think it's a very common story in most societies, uh, born uh, in, a, in a somewhat uh, nefarious way, treated as a social outcast, and sort of rising back to power. We've heard this over and over again. Even this season, Alexander the Great, uh, Vlad the Impaler, and now Shaka all have that same story in common. You, always, you almost wonder if it's actually true. Welcome to history. History is about recognizing trends and exploring themes, and I think we may have stumbled upon one. But at any rate, whenever Shaka takes over the Zulu, he has major plans for his tribe. Number one is to establish the law and order that we've discussed so far uh, already in this podcast. And again, from the lesson he learned from his failures raising cattle. This is going to be very important. Uh, and again, creation myths will go a long way in terms of filling the gaps that we love to have as historians that we just aren't going to. Now, whenever Shaka takes over, and again, not something unusual, he doesn't just gain this seat of power by birth. I mean, remember, he's put in place by a larger outside political entity. In this case, it's the Mtetwa. But he's put there, and he's given an opportunity at reform, and he does so in amazing and stellar fashion. What does he do? Remember the hallmarks of this Nguni society, these many different peoples, this patchwork quilt of peoples bound together by geography between the Indian Ocean and the Drakensberg Mountains. They live in a very specific way. It's a very competitive way now with the induction of European trade. Warfare becomes a way of life. And it's important you understand what warfare looks like between these peoples to understand how Shaka rises to power so quickly and transforms the Zulu into one of the premier African 
not kingdoms but empires, of its age. Warfare in tribal societies, and this is true in native North America as it is in sub-Saharan Africa, tend to be very similar in that the way a battle is perceived is very much different than the way it's perceived in the Western world. Western armies function like pyramids. You have one commander at the top, and you have successive commanders beneath them that relay orders and materials and information. We can say Western armies are based on disciplined maneuvers. But tribal armies, and this is true uh, in uh, KwaZulu-Natal as it is in the Ohio country in colonial America, believe it or not, roughly at the same time, Tribal societies don't view it that way. They don't view soldiers as cogs in a larger machine. They view soldiers as individuals fighting for individual glories. And this is an entirely different perception of what a Western army should be. And as we'll see, it's why Western armies tend to falter so badly against these tribal enemies that they'll make during their process of colonization. So let's explore that a little more. From the Zulu perspective, before Shaka. If there is a battle, you represent your family, you represent your clan, you fight as a group, there's no doubt, but there's no real structure to it. I mean, it's not a mad chaos, but you're, you function on your own. You don't wait for orders once the battle begins. Whereas opposed to, say, the army of France or the army of Britain, soldiers really don't do anything unless they're told to. And the chain of command is, again, sort of inefficient when it comes time to fight, but in the, in the grand scheme of things, it will always find success. Whenever these different uh, Nguni tribal peoples battle one another uh, during this competition for European trade, battles tend to be very unique. They all fight with shields made of oxide, and they all fight with very long, and I mean six to seven foot long spears. Uh, battles tend not to be very bloody, they tend to be more ceremonial in that regard. Uh, there's a lot of chanting, there's a lot of dancing, there's some exchanging of violence, some blows thrown. And normally, the battle ends before there's too much damage done. Again, in a tribal society, if you don't have to waste your soldiers frivolously, you don't. And that was true to native culture in America as well. But whenever Shaka takes over uh, as the chief of the Zulu, he realizes that many of these battles are completely foolish uh, at worst, inefficient at best. And he begins to institute a series of reforms all based on militaristic virtue that will not just change the way the Zulu fight, but that will fundamentally transform who they are and how they view themselves as a people. And this, when applied the right way, will fundamentally transform most of South Africa. So what do I mean exactly? Well, Shaka will institute what we think of as European-style reforms into the armies of these Zulu peoples. But again, you have to understand this isn't necessarily an act of cultural diffusion. Shaka is not copying Europeans. He's coming up with this on his own. And it is amazing in what it can do. So number one, he completely stratifies the Zulu world uh, into something that can be controlled. He puts all of the people into age groups. He makes everyone serve in the army, men that is, through conscript drafts. And he trains them to fight not as individuals, but as one 
common force. And again, that seems like a no-brainer for us in the West, but this is a relatively new idea in a tribal society, almost unheard of, in fact. He incentivizes combat uh, with his men. Uh, if you train yourself properly, if you fight the right way, you are rewarded. For example, he outlaws any marriage or sexual relations before the age of 35. The idea is, if you lived at 35, you probably survived a few battles, and you deserve that aspect of life. Now, that can seem pretty horrendous by today's standards, but, again, he's regimenting a world that's very unregimented from the classical European sense. And Europeans will see this, and they'll be pretty amazed. I mean, again, he's doing this on his own. He's not doing this because of some dialogue with the Portuguese or the British. Some of the other things that he does, uh, at a practical level, is transform the fighting style of the Zulu as well. I mean, what he's effectively doing is, and, and our analogy of Greece works really well here, is he takes a world that's, again, a patchwork of peoples, and he sets the Zulu apart as one that is hyper-militarized. I mean, first and foremost, they are a martial society, as before they were a pastoral farming community. He looks at the way other Nguni peoples fight. He says, look at their spears. They're, again, six, seven feet long. They're thrown at long range. If you hit somebody, great. If you don't, let's face it, most of the time you won't, then you have no weapon. So he takes all of the spears of his army and he shortens them. The blade remains the same size, but he shortens the shaft to about two and a half to three feet. What this allows is your spear now is no such thing. It becomes a hand-to-hand -hand weapon of combat not to be thrown, and never to be dropped. In fact, he had an order in his army. If you dropped your weapon, you would be killed. I mean, you would literally be taken aside and executed. So, you have this real deep commitment to holding on to this weapon, and you're fighting many armies that do no such thing. The other thing that Shaka will do to transform the Zulu into an effective fighting force is, again, implement the idea, one that in the West we're very familiar with, with moving as one, operating as one, and finding victory as one, as opposed to fighting as many different individuals. It's very hard to explain this. I'm going to do it the best way I can without any actual visual representations, but I think I might have it down. So let's give it a try. When you picture armies on a battlefield, say in some old history textbook, we always like to give each army a different color, maybe one's red, maybe one's blue, and we like to show the military formations using brightly colored lines. So a traditional battle would be uh, a long red line facing a long blue line uh, in a parallel form. You know, you can imagine they're shooting each other or something, pushing each other back and forth. And that's the traditional European perspective. Now, that's not what Shaka's going to do. Shaka, again, is very much a creative thinker. He thinks outside the box. And instead of facing off his opponents in a line... Imagine his army shaped like a number three, you know, from above. Uh, the open end of the three is facing the enemy's line. So where the center of the three is, that sharp point, uh, is the center of the enemy's line as well. This will be a formation uh, that Shaka will call, and what the people, the Zulu themselves, will fight in, uh, is something called the Horn of the Bull. And here's the idea. Your strike point, your primary point of impact, is not a whole line where it's evenly spread, but it's just the center, again, the point of the three, right in the middle. You put your strongest soldiers there. They always, again, believe that 
cattle is sacred, the bull is sacred. So they actually call this center point the chest, and that's what they're referring to. The chest is your uh, best fighters, your biggest fighters, your most effective hand-to-hand -hand warriors. At the initial clash, that point, the center of the three, is where most of the damage is inflicted to the enemy. And again, remember, the enemy is not fighting in a traditional European way. They tend to fight in a scattered way as individuals. After that initial contact is made, the outer edges, left and right, the flanks of that number three shape, begin to close in around the opponent, almost like a Venus flytrap closing its mouth around its prey. And before long, even though you attacked in a parallel formation, the Zulu have entirely encapsulated their enemies. And from then on, it's total decimation. That's what we're going to see. And again, this really begins Zulu's takeover in about the year 1820. So it's pretty incredible as far as that goes. Again, very innovative stuff. And the amount of damage that he's going to create as a result of this is nothing short of staggering. Just to give you some idea, the Zulu themselves begin with about 2,500 people. He begins to implement military conquest to his north, to his south, to his east, and to his west, one by one, taking on enemies, taking on neighboring Nguni peoples, um, including the Mtetwa, who he came from, right? He was sort of raised and trained by them. And he begins absorbing them. And he does this in such a fashion that by the end of it, his original kingdom of 2,500 people uh, stretches to a quarter of a million, 250 thousand people. I mean, it's a staggering, staggering change. But this is why we're talking about Shaka of the Zulu today, because of these amazing, amazing reforms he puts forward, and the way that he does it. Uh, it's simply overwhelming. At this point, we spent a lot of time dealing with the reforms of Shaka. How he transformed the Zulu from a relatively obscure peoples in a land of many different obscure peoples to one of great power, in fact, creating one of the largest empires in all of sub-Saharan Africa. But we do want to get back to the idea, this, this notion of the biographical sketch of piecing together his life. We know the story says he comes from humble beginnings. By this point, that's long gone. But what kind of a ruler was he? What kind of a person was he? I mean, these are all very difficult questions that we aren't going to find in any library. You're not going to find a diary of Shaka. So the question is, who was he? And how do we find this answer? This is why I love this podcast. Again, it lets us shed light on aspects of history, not lowercase h history, but capital H history, what historical professionals do that most people never think about. And here's a really good example of it. We're going to rewind a bit, uh, about to the year 1900. And we're going to see that Africa, really for the first time for Europeans, is opening up, especially the British. To give you some short background, uh, Europeans dealt with Africans, uh, really since the ancient world, but especially sub-Saharan Africa. It was very difficult for Europeans to penetrate deep enough into the continent to really explore the landscape. I mean, you had West Africa filled with different European colonial powers uh, all the way back to the 15th century, maybe earlier than that. But they were coastal outposts. These were not deep, penetrating studies of the continent. Well, technology by the year 1900 has allowed that to happen, and I would say much to the detriment, in maybe the understatement of the century, to the people who lived there.
But one of the things that happens here is the discovery of ancient African kingdoms, kingdoms that people did not know existed, like Timbuktu, for example, new figures like Musa, uh, Mansa, the richest man maybe in the history of the world in West Africa. I mean, these are histories that Europeans see and they want to know more about. And it's at this same time that the first real stories, the real first-hand accounts, begin to come out. Uh, and again, they're about 80 years old by this point. So historians in, in England, especially, begin to wonder, who is this figure? Now, there's two ways you study groups uh, that have no written tradition. One is oral history, which we're going to talk a lot about. And the other is dealing with first-hand accounts from eyewitnesses that are not African. In this case, probably the British. And whenever early British colonists saw Shaka, and they saw how he ruled the people that he conquered, they all tended to paint a very grim picture. They said he was a despot. They said he was dictatorial. They said he brutalized his people, and he ruled through fear. Now, that's a very stark image. And it's one that, if you only take European sources alone, uh, you might get a pretty negative view of the man. But again, we have now access to the continent itself, Europeans imagine, and these oral traditions. So in about the year 1900, the, the, the turn of the 20th century, a historian from England named James Stewart will gather uh, many of the elder peoples of this region and ask them about their experience with Shaka and what it was like. And many of them give very glowing endorsements. They say he was very manly, he was very proud, he ruled in a very hardy way, but in a very fair way. He killed only when necessary, he had a real sense of justice and pride. But other sources are really just legitimate head-scratchers. Uh, in one instance, and I excuse me, it's, it's going to be graphic, but in one instance, uh, a person remembers seeing a pregnant woman uh, pass Shaka. This is not a noble woman, this is just a woman of, of the Zulu nation. Uh, and Shaka ordered that she be killed and her, her infant removed from her stomach uh, to see what position the infant was sitting in. There was no reason for this. Uh, there was no benefit to this. I mean, this was indiscriminate killing for killing's sake. But it does make you question how this man ruled uh, and why. Now, does that mean that the British were right in their eyewitness accounts? Maybe. Could it be that this person was maybe wronged by Shaka or subjugated by Shaka and he was angry about it? That's very possible as well. I mean, history is the study of people in many ways, of course, and people are governed by passions. But there are other stories from these James Stewart Chronicles. One, uh, a woman is at a river uh, putting water into a pal. Shaka comes up to her and says, give me a drink. She doesn't know who it is. She says, why don't you drink with the rest of the dogs? Uh, he has her executed as well. So you do have these very troubling issues with a person like Shaka. And again, it's not necessarily a problem unless you don't know what you're seeing. As historians, we don't have to say we don't know much about Shaka. It's a problem. We shouldn't even study him. What we do have to say is, in our analysis, we don't have the whole story. We have mostly oral traditions, and they can be true and they can be untrue. Bias is a part of every story. Again, it's not that you don't have the materials, you just might not have the material you're comfortable with. But at any rate, um, it's one of the interesting ways we can think about this man and what he's able to achieve and able to accomplish. These James Stewart Chronicles are incredible, uh, absolutely incredible. Uh, and I would encourage you to look at them because you do have this really sort of first line or, or, or first draft of history you can see with Shaka.
But at the end of Shaka's life, and he doesn't live to be very long, uh, you begin to see he's really done something pretty amazing and pretty dynamic and pretty special. Uh, he's made an empire of 250,000 people. As he takes over these new territories, subjugates this people, he is not afraid to use force, and he uses it liberally. And we have many examples of people fleeing for their lives, spreading to places where the Nguni have never been before, heading toward the Drakensberg Mountains and the foothills of those mountains. There's really wonderful examples of artwork on walls showing uh, Shaka soldiers with their trademark short spears and giant oxide shields chasing these people. I mean, we don't want this to seem like it was a peaceful conquest. It was very much a hostile conquest, but he fundamentally transforms uh, the tribal, societal, and cultural nature of Southern Africa with his conquest. So, really interesting figure. Whenever I perceive Shaka and the Zulu nation or Zulu empire that emerges, for me, the legacy uh, is very much the way I think of ancient Sparta in a lot of ways. I mean, it's a, a completely militarized society in a continent in an age where that really doesn't exist at that level, it really was unlike anything we've seen before. Now, the history of Africa from Shaka onward, of course, we'll talk a lot more about, I think, in future seasons of wartime. I'd love to do an entire season just on African history. I think that'd be a real benefit. I don't know if you'd be interested, uh, but I think it would be a real treat for me and, and a real valuable resource for a lot of people to have access to it. becomes a very difficult one. I mean, you had these long-standing African tribal traditions that were sort of changed forever with the arrival of Europeans. They adapted to Europeans as Europeans adapted to them. But the history of Africa is one that has a rich culture and a rich tradition that's sort of painted over, you could say, uh, with the inclusion of European laws and colonization and customs and so on. Uh, so much so that the history of Africa is, is forever redirected, and South Africa especially, all the way to uh, Nelson Mandela in modern day, you have a struggle between colonists, original colonists, so to speak, and the people who have lived there for generations. Shaka of the Zulu becomes a resistance figure for many of these people. Shaka himself will actually be assassinated by his own men. Uh, very much a Julius Caesar type of ending, we could say. Uh, and an unceremonious one for a person who did so much... Uh, who achieved so much. But again, you have to wonder, how did he actually treat his people? I mean, I'm sure a lot of people are probably celebrating upon his death. But he becomes a resistance figure. And if you travel through South Africa today, you will see statues of Shaka. Uh, you will see movies about Shaka. There was actually an album all about Shaka. It was made of popular music. I mean, this is a major, major figure. Uh, and it's one that, again, we don't fully understand and don't fully comprehend. Now, who's to say in 10 or 15 or 20 years we may know a lot more about him based on discovery of new sources or uh, new creative ways of approaching the subject? I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about history is as time goes on further and we get further from the man himself, we may actually learn more. But Southern Africa will be indelibly changed as a result of Shaka's life and policies. And I think that's one of the most important things. Again, like most of the people we're going to see in this season, who he becomes after his death is far more vast and comprehensive than probably who he was in life. But that sort of goes with the territory.
As always, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. Jump on board. Let us know what you want to discuss. You call the shots this season. Thank you to John Shaw for the recommendation of Shaka. And thank you for listening. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.